Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Altmed podcast. Your host, Andrew Dowling here in the co-host chair is my man, Mitch Kurtz. And Morning. we have a special uh, international guest of notoriety today joining us to tell us all about everything that's happening in Canada. Is none other than the author, uh, an author from MJ Biz Daily. It's Matt Lammers. Matt, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, it's excellent to have you on the show, actually. Very curious to get some insights. We've basically had only Australians to date, <laughs> a couple internationally, but but um, yeah, very keen to get this discussion underway because obviously Canada is uh, somewhere we look to in Australia as, as a kind of leading figure in the world for cannabis, I guess. It's kind of like our, um, most sort of our, like, yeah. our uh, older brother or something, but yeah. Um, yeah, we're just uh, wanting to get a sense of, I don't know, it'd be good to unpack what's gone right, what's gone wrong in Canada and, and maybe see if we can spot some of that uh, happening here in Australia. So maybe to kick things off, yeah, how long have you been commentating and observing the, uh, the Canadian medical cannabis or, or just cannabis industry? I joined um, in this company in 2017. And before that, I was leaving overseas just be as a journalist. And so I didn't, I wasn't involved in the indus this industry. I didn't know much about it. I spent the first couple of years when I was reporting on it, learning, interviewing people and learning myself, 2017, 2018. And it wasn't until around 2019 where I, I felt I had a pretty good handle on it where I could share some of, some of my opinions. Um, and that's when I started tracking um, the amount of space that cannabis producers had bankrolled and established. That's what I spent a couple of years reporting on 2017, 2018, 2019. Was, that was really the story was when Canadian companies were raising capital and then spending it on greenhouses. And that's pretty much all they were spending it on besides yeah. executive compensation, executive <laughs> comp and greenhouses. Yeah. And so a lot of my interviews went like this. I was like talk, interviewing analysts and CEOs and I was like talking to them on the phone and I was like, uh, you know, so you're bankrolling um, enough cultivation capacity to produce uh, 200,000 uh, kilograms of cannabis annually. And 25 of your competitors are doing the same, but the demand in Canada is only going to be about four or 500,000 kilograms for a couple of years. So how do you square that up? And then they were always like, oh, don't worry, the poor companies are going to die off and the good ones are just going to survive. And for them, it was just easy, but it's just, that doesn't happen immediately. That takes years or decades, right? So that's yeah. how we got into this jam we're in right now, where we have all these companies with these massive greenhouses all over the world, not just in Canada, financed by Canadian companies, growing way more cannabis than they're ever, cannabis than they're ever going to be able to sell. So that's kind of how I started, like, did I mean, one thing we hear in Australia when similar questions are asked about these huge facilities that are being grown is, you know, there's this talk around, you know, but what about export? You know, we'll be able to ship a lot of Australian flour abroad. Is that something that came up as well or was in the early? Oh, yeah, yeah, that was all, that was their first go-to. It was like, oh, any excess we have, we're going to export. Yeah. And I was like, you're going to have a lot of excess though. It's going to be like 99% of your production. And so I'm not saying there's not going to be an export industry someday. I, for, for years, I've just been saying, like, here's the data. Here's the export market right now, the export import market for um, 
medical marijuana is extremely, extremely small, even today. Five years ago, it was almost non-existent. Yeah. And so like, I'm not saying this isn't going to develop into a big import export industry someday. It could be in a couple of years or it could be in 20 or 30 years, but no one knows. Right. So you're building these massive greenhouses. If you're building massive greenhouses, expecting to export your excess capacity, then that is an unreasonable risk for investors to take in my opinion. Totally. Well, what about the, um, so I, I suppose, yeah, that's going back maybe five years and, you know, there's just been this huge expansion in cultivation and, and manufacturing facilities in Canada, um, some of which have obviously been supplying um, companies in Australia. So we have, you know, quite a bit of Canadian flour that, that, that's come to our shores. But in terms of their predictions of the competition dying off, as, as they were describing to you, what has the degree of consolidation been like over there? Has there been um, a lot of the players merging with one another? Have some just completely died off? What, what can you sort of tell us about that? There's been major, major consolidation ever since the day I joined this company five years ago, but <laughs> not even close to enough to, you know, to bring down the number of players. Like I saw a stat a couple of days ago, I tweeted it out. I'm just going to guess at the data here. So don't quote me. It was something like you're talking the number of companies that have, that are selling flour in Canada, dried cannabis, uh, like went from 50 to about 150 to like 300, like every year it like doubles. Wow. And, even, and that's what, and that's taken into account in consolidation. Consolidation is happening, yeah. but it's not, you can't consolidate like that hundreds of companies. There's something like, 700 licensed producers in Canada right now. Wow. And it's just wow. the number just grows. There's consolidation every month, every year. There's always consolidation. But that number, the number of competitors, the number of producers in the country only grows. It's, it's people weird. love this business, right? Like people are passionate about it. There's mm. a lot of entrepreneurs who are regular people who, who can get access to a couple million dollars, a few million dollars, which is enough to start a cannabis production company. And they do it because they love the plant and they love the business and they love the industry. And they, those, are the gen, those are generally the type of people that I would fear competing against if I was a large, a large company. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night if I was like, I have all these hundreds of small competitors who are more passionate than I am, than I am about the plant, more knowledgeable about farming, more knowledgeable about their customers than I am as a large, as a large producer. These companies are kicking the asses of the big companies. Yeah, well, that that's uh, that is really interesting because I mean, uh, as a kind of casual lay observer looking at what happened over there before Australia, I think to the best of my knowledge, the first one I became aware of was when I think the the private equity firm Privateer started Tilray. You know, what's that going back ten years? And to think that there's been hundreds of companies since then, it's it's a little bit different in Australia because, of course, if you need if you want to you know, basically be an LP, there's a significant um, capital expense up front in, in setting up the facility to meet pharmaceutical grade GMP standards. So I'm uh, just not to dive too deeply into the, the regulatory side, but is, is that what is the case over there in the sense that are all of those 700 odd LPs, you know, setting up a facility that meets Canadian pharmaceutical level of regs, or is it 
more that no 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 so yeah um to be a cannabis producer in canada you don't necessarily have to be pharma quality production or eu gmp or any of that you need to be um uh, you need to follow good production practice guidelines which is much lower than uh eu gmp Mm. Um, it's not like too low it's high enough in my opinion but it's definitely lower than eu gmp so that just means the entry barrier is much, would be much lower. So if you if every company had to have EU GMP, then the entry barrier would be too high for most people. Yeah. And I'm actually working on a story right now about companies wasting their money on EU GMP, Canadian companies, because uh, I, t- I took a look at all of the companies that got EU GMP certifications for facilities in the last five years. There's like <laughs> dozens. Yeah. And how many of those facilities do you think are even in operation today? Like four or five. Wow. Almost like very few. Do you think it might be a situation kind of like the beer market where you have all these little microbreweries type kind of like, you know, these people who are super passionate, as you were saying, small companies that end up getting just bought out by the bigger ones as as they hit that kind of medium sized business? Maybe. I don't know. The thing thing is, the big companies, um, eventually, yes. Eventually, you're right. But the problem is right now is you don't know who the winner is. So you don't know who the big ones are. That you, The big companies that are big today aren't going to be the companies that are big in Canada next year because they're doing so, so poorly. So I'll just read off some market share data for you um, just to paint a picture right. of how bad yeah. the large producers are doing. Okay. So the biggest, the number one uh, company in Canada by market share is Hexo. Um, one year ago today, their market share was 13%. They spent roughly $1 billion on MA since then. And Whoa. their market share has fallen to 9.3%. <laughs> okay. Oh my God. Um, it gets worse, it gets way worse. Tilray, <laughs> which merged with Afria, okay, it's hard to put a dollar figure on that because it was um, Afria basically reverse acquired Tilray. So it's like, I don't know, it was, they spent a lot of money on that. Um, on that on that deal, it was I would say a billion dollar deal, but I don't know the dollar figure offhand. Anyways, their market share one year ago was sixteen point four percent. Today, their market share is eight point two percent, so it's exactly half. Um, and they spend a lot of money on M and A. So imagine how how bad they would be doing if they didn't spend that yeah. money on it. The company wouldn't even exist, right? It would mm-hmm. it would be like probably in the, in the low single digits. Uh, Organogram is a company that's an example of, of, of what what they're they're doing they're, they're doing it right okay a year ago their market share was six percent say their market share is eight percent they've only spent a little bit of money on MA, not very much so that's almost all organic growth canopy growth who i'm sure you know yeah their market share was almost 13 percent one year ago their market share today is 6.8 percent mm. terrible disgraceful wow it's disgraceful because they spent canopy alone I spent billions and billions and billions of dollars on M&A and their market share is only 6.8% and falling fast. Mm. Um, and then just like, yeah, so the list just goes on from there. So those are the biggest ones, right? And then the smaller companies are improving their market share. It's, yeah. But most of these companies aren't profitable, even the smaller ones. And one of the main reasons is um, Hexo, Tilray, and Canopy um, if you look at all the cannabis companies in Canada, those three companies have cut their average cost of cannabis the most in the last two years. So they're basically trying to undercut all of the smaller companies. 
and they're still getting their asses kicked. Canopy and Hexane, Hexo and Tilray have the cheapest, they sell the cheapest cannabis in Canada and people still don't want to buy it. What's the price we think we're talking about when we're saying the cheapest cannabis in Canada? I think, uh, I don't have the data in front of me, but I think that it was about four to four dollars and fifty cents per gram on average. Retail or, or flour? Yeah. Wow. But so that's it's really that's, cheap, right? And people yeah. are still not buying it. That's uh, yeah. A lot of people are, in a, are a lot of people are buying it, but they're buying the other stuff more. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so does that mean? They're, well, they're, I, proportionally, they're losing sales every year. Yeah. When they when those companies though go out and you know kind of conduct extensive M&A activity. I mean, is that at least, a, is someone winning in the sense of some of those smaller to medium companies that they acquire getting a good payday to, um, you know, to kind of lose. sell up? No. They okay. lose. You know why? Because imagine you're, okay, example. example exhibit A is <laughs> Afria buying Tilray, reverse buying Tilray, so it's called Tilray now. And then they close the, and then they close Tilray's headquarters in British Columbia. Right. And that was a pioneering company. This, you were already talking about um, Privateer, right? So Privateer yep. started Tilray um, a long time ago. And they're one of, the, one of the first licensed producers, very successful, did a lot of research and development. They had a lot to be proud of, that company, Tilray. And they were proud. And then they were bought by Erwin Simon. And then he almost immediately fired everyone at Tilray's headquarters and closed it down and then gave himself a $10 million cash bonus. These are all just facts. Like he can, I mean, anybody can say you're, you're being unfair to them, but these are facts. Is that fair? Is it fair if your, your company is bought by a large cannabis, cannabis producer in Canada? And then, and then two months later, you're unemployed and the CEO of that company got a $10 million payout. How does that happen? I mean, we sit here about, you know, um, constellation kind of CEO fees of, you know, 40, 50, 60 million dollars, things like this. And it seems like that payment was almost just to take them from hemorrhaging a billion dollars a year or whatever to only a hundred million dollars a year or something like that. And it's just, it just doesn't seem right at all. Um, you know. Yeah, for normal people like us, it doesn't seem right. But for people who live in that universe, the CEO universe, this is normal. Like normal CEOs get paid tens of millions of dollars to do MA in the nor- in the CEO world, right? So this is just this is just normal. Like this is this happens every day. But what's different though is that for a couple of years, um, CEOs in Canada's cannabis industry were the highest paid CEOs in the whole country. Mm-hmm. And they weren't making any money. And they were firing workers on mass, and they were receiving hundreds of millions of dollars of government subsidies. Wow! So that's not normal. <laughs> yeah, it's shocking. It's crazy. I mean, just just to give uh, sort of our listeners a sense of the executive remuneration at some of the companies that you've mentioned, the big ones. What 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 are these companies on average kind of? across the board spending annually on compensating the uh, the C-suite? Well, I'm only talking about the biggest ones, right? Like the Canopies, the, the Auroras, the Tilrays, uh, the Hexos of the world. So there's not very many of those. But they pay, usually when the CEO joins the company, they start by getting a massive thank you for joining the company kind of lump, lump sum payment. Sometimes it's all cash. Sometimes it's a combination of cash and shares. Sometimes it's um, 
Uh, is, is it ever just shares? I mean, I imagine if a company is struggling and you say to someone, hey, welcome to the company. Here's a, a big slice of equity uh, that's not worth very much. I imagine there's, there always needs to be a cash component, right? It probably, yeah. I mean, they, they, they probably would prefer cash, but I've never asked them about that. Um, <laughs> Even, but even the ones that are, even the ones that say, oh, my, my compensation is mostly share-based, so it's not cash-based. Even those guys are among the highest paid CEOs in Canada, yeah. um, I, but by, by salary. Uh, so, for example, Canopy Gross, David Klein's salary is over a million dollars. Erwin Simon for, for Tilray might be the highest paid CEO in Canada by salary. His salary is, I think, 1.5, 1. 1. 1.6 million. I could be wrong though, so I'm not, I'm not, don't quote me on that. Oh, just salary, you mean? Not, it's not high, it's high. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Um, I mean, do, do you, is there much talk in Canada about the Australian market? Do you hear about the Australian market much at the moment or is it kind of like a an underling that hasn't really kind of made headline news? Yeah, there? not much. Not much, to be honest with you. It's still pretty small, right? Like, I think you're going to have your sales this year are going to be at $100 million, maybe, or maybe $150 million mm. for the whole industry. Mm. Um, so that's not that much money. And even in Canada, our, our medical market is worth about $400 million a year. And that's even the biggest uh, medical market in the whole world. Germany, yeah. I mean, there's some issues with German data, so I don't know. Um, I forecasted that Germany would become the biggest medical market in the world this year. So I think that'll probably happen at some point. Yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, so there's not a lot of talk about the Australian markets because it's just so small. Yeah. Mm. And what about then? I want to ask about the, uh, I suppose, just, you know, there's a lot of talk in Australia about recreational. We've had a, a you know, change in government. There seems to be an appetite, at least in, in some states in the country, to, um, to go in this direction. What did you observe to be kind of the impact to the medical market in Canada at the time that, that Canada opened up a recreational market? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, I did uh, some reporting on that and about how resilient the Canadian medical market was because sales weren't falling. Medical mm. sales weren't falling after Canada legalized cannabis for a couple of years, but more recently in the, in the last couple of years, um, sales medical sales have fallen substantially. So, and this is, and that's consistent with what happens in American states too. Yeah. Um, that legalized recreational cannabis is medical sales eventually start to fall significantly. But I mean, when I say significantly, so Canada's medical market peaked at around $550 million annually, the medical market. And now it's like I said, 400 million. So it's down 25% or so. Yeah. Um, but I guess that's going to continue. Yeah, that's, Canada that's... has a very unique medical market, though, right? It's not because you can't buy medical cannabis at a store legally in Canada. It has to be mailed to you directly from the licensed producer. Oh, um, wow. okay. So people who people who get who are serious about medical cannabis and they need a lot of it, it's habitual, and they stick with that LP because they know what they're going to get from them. They know those products work for their particular issues. And so I think that's why the, the market's resilient. Canada also has this weird system where we, the, the federal government allows people to grow a certain number of plants for either their own medical consumption or designated for someone else. You, 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 can, you, can, get a des, you can designate someone else to grow it for you. 
Right. But they don't, we're not talking like four or five plants here. Like some of these people get dozens to hundreds of plants. Wow. And, wow. and I mean, obviously that's not all for their consumption. So there's a huge gray market um, that's gray because the federal government permitted them to grow it, but it's not legal because they're not allowed to sell it. You know what I mean? That is so, because we, we have one territory in Australia, um, incidentally, our uh, equivalent to Ottawa. Um, so where all, all the politicians do their work and they've permitted, um, you know, bridge that gap if, if you please. But basically they've permitted that particular part of Australia to, you can grow up to four plants there. But um, yeah, hundreds of plants or up to a hundred plants is, is a totally different uh, ballpark. Cause you can kind of see four plants, you know, there's a personal consumption case to be made there, but uh, we've got LPs yeah. doing less than hundreds of plants. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 So it's, uh, no, very oh, that, that that is definitely so. What then for? I mean, in terms then of uh, yeah, where, where the industry is at at the moment. So you you talked about the medical falling off maybe twenty five percent. What about the recreational market? Is that just going from strength to strength at this point in time? It's doing okay. So I think the, um, the recreational market's going to grow about 20% annually this year over last year. So like the growth is there. And actually the American market is only going to supposed to grow, like aggregately is only supposed to grow about 1%. Mm-hmm. So I wrote a story today about American companies coming to Canada for to try and find some growth, which is pretty ironic. Yeah, totally. Wouldn't, Canadian wouldn't, companies are like lining up to try and go to the States, wasting tons of money down there. Wouldn't, wouldn't the growth of about 1% in America be a, almost equivalent to about 10% in Canada though? Uh, yeah, I don't, I, mean, I don't have those numbers, but the principle is right. Yeah, yeah. The principle yeah. is right, just, yeah. Just off the top of my head, I'm thinking. Yeah. Well, how do the Canadians view the what's happened in America? I mean, what's your take on your market versus what they do in the US? I'm just just curious. Is it totally just uncontrolled, unregulated? Uh, you know. Well, I think it's like controlled and regulated at the state level, but just federally, it's still illegal, right? So mm. I think it's like, and it varies from state to state. Some states are, are quite strict, and some states. It is pretty much a free for all, free for all, like in California. Mm. So, yeah, I don't know. The way Canada views the American market is is that is generally this is the it's like a huge bonanza that's just waiting to be tapped. They're like waiting to go down there. But the problem is, is like the cut the kinds of businesses that I'm talking about are the big ones, right? The cannabis, the tillaries, and stuff. But they're so bad at selling cannabis in Canada. So why does anyone think they're going to be any, any good at it in the states? Yeah. Or in Germany or anywhere else, like it's, it does not make any sense. Yeah. It won't be. Is, is what is my opinion. Are they, and, and have they set up considerable operation? Have they, you know, in terms of where they spend their billions, have they gone into Europe? What's been the sort of extent of Canadian? So, well, okay, first, first the states. Okay, they have these insane strategies that are ultra risky, like the riskiest business strategies probably ever concocted in anyone's brain. Like so. <laughs> They, they put up hundreds of millions of dollars to, um, to promise to buy companies after cannabis is not illegal in the U.S. Oh, shit. And this has happened a number of times. So they'll, so they'll be like, I don't want to use a specific company because I don't remember the numbers right now, but Canopy has promised to buy company X 
in Colorado for $250 million when, and it'll automatically kick in, kick in when cannabis is not illegal. Um, so it's risky. Like on the cash list. Yeah. <laughs> it's risk. It's risk. And yeah, they're using cash and stock to do it, to put in money up front. And um, it's risky, obviously, because you don't know when the U.S. will legalize cannabis. It could happen next week. There was a bill today that went in the Senate. It's not going to pass. But who knows? Maybe it will. The U.S. is super unpredictable. Totally. Right? So maybe maybe they're going to, next week, maybe they're going to legalize cannabis. Who the hell knows? I, I seriously doubt it, though. And I definitely wouldn't invest $300 million on that prospect. Hmm. I would put what? maybe $20 on it. I would bet you $20. But I wouldn't put three hundred. <laughs> Maybe even fifty. But um, Maybe. but but why wouldn't you just go in with that kind of money and on a state by state basis and just set up, you know, cultivation? Oh, you, oh yeah. So that's a yeah, great question. They can't because they're publicly traded. Mm. Uh, so they're on the U- illegal federal. They're on the Nasdaq, the New York Stock Exchange, the Toronto Stock Exchange, and those exchanges won't let cannabis producers who grow and touch cannabis. Uh, sell cannabis in a place where it's federally illegal. Yeah. That's why so, you see them in Australia. So uh, the American companies are mostly publicly traded, um, but they're publicly traded on a small stock exchange in Canada called the Canadian Stock Exchange. And they're cool with that, but it's a very small stock exchange. It doesn't have as much liquidity and, you know, it's not, it doesn't carry the weight of TSX or the mm. NASDAQ or the, or the NYSC. Surely these companies are just waiting for that day when it gets federally legalized because they think, shit, you know, British American Tobacco, Pfizer, they're going to come in and just purchase us kind of thing is, is what would be in my head at least. Yeah, that's generally, that was part of the hypothesis a few years ago. And, and that's why a company like Constellation bought Canopy because they thought the valuations were going to keep rising. Mm. There was a bit of a mania happening in 2018, 2019, 2020. Constellation got caught up in it, ended up spending $4 billion to basically buy Canopy Growth. I think they own like 43% or something uh, with options to buy more. But they basically own Canopy Growth. If they waited a couple of years, they could have bought it for much lower. Yeah, goodness. And so uh, what are we seeing then? in terms of movement into other markets like Europe and Asia, uh, are any of the Canadians making some big plays there? So they moved in and then they moved out. So like <laughs> Canopy and Aurora and not only, I keep bringing those guys up, but a lot of the other ones too, they bought facilities, they bought greenhouses, they bought companies, they bought property all over the place, like in, in Denmark and in, in Portugal and Greece and Germany and Australia and Thailand and I mean, all over it's in South that, that, Ta- sounding of like America, a land, even in just, Africa. Yeah. Just a real estate. And, that, uh, uh, and part of the thesis was that they were going to export it. But again, we already talked about it. Like there's nowhere to export it to. No one wants to import it. The three yeah. biggest import markets in the world are so small. Yeah. You have Israel who, who has like insanely, unpredictable regulations in, 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 in government um, yeah. they're changing all the time. They just stopped imports randomly. Like earlier this week, I don't know if they, I don't know if they restarted them again. Um, so how could you rely on a market like that? And, Germany, and it's a population uh, of like what? 6 million kind of thing. It's not big. I don't, I don't know what Israel. That's a good question. Um, it's, but it's, they have, it's, it's something like that. 
they probably have the in between either the second or third biggest medical cannabis population in the world though canada has the biggest um i don't remember something hundreds of thousands of people maybe 200,000 i don't know anyways israel is 100,000 people 110 maybe germany i don't remember what it is probably 150 just guessing could be wrong um but there so it's a substantial number of potential customers for a business that's yeah and so that they've affected what's in australia too i was keeping track but i stopped keeping track a few months ago so i don't I don't know what you're at now for. I think it's approaching that a couple hundred thousand. Um, yeah. And it's, it's a bit weird because we have this sort of situation in Australia where, you know, you have regular prescribing doctors and then you have, um, you know, other doctors who, you know, get approval for their patient on a kind of per patient case by case basis. And that sort of latter category was the more predominant category early on. So what we were able to track with the data was, okay, this is the number of patients that have been approved um, on, the, on the per patient basis. But now we're seeing that number fall away because more and more doctors are becoming regular prescribers. So we don't, the, the, the data is a little bit distorted. <clears throat> the, the, there's definitely an increase in, in patient numbers accessing medical cannabis but the thing is we, we don't have a, a market other than medical so even if they're medical or potentially not every person is considered a medical patient if that makes sense in australia that's recorded so if, unless it's black market they're all medical so you could be a recreational consumer who accesses medical cannabis by saying the right things kind of a little bit like a canadian model um, but you'll be yeah. counted as medical data if that makes sense that happens here for sure. Yeah. yeah. And I think um, we're talking actually before we, we started rolling about uh, our, our mutual friend, Reese Cohen. And I think some of the, um, you know, the, the study and research uh, at a place he was, he was formerly involved with it at Sydney Uni, they've sort of indicated that less than 5% of, of people of medical cannabis users in Australia access it legally. So there is a lot of black market CBD oil and, and all that sort of stuff that the people are, are still accessing. I, I would expect that the you know legal medical market is starting to take a little bit more than just five percent, but um, but that's sort of where we're at at the moment. That's what I call the unaddressable market. Mm. The number one thing that I've noticed CEOs get wrong in this industry is they take the TAM, the total addressable market, but they include uh, sales in that figure that is not, that are not accessible to them. Yeah. So it's not addressable. So you can't say it's part of your total addressable market. Keyword is addressable. If you yeah. can't sell something to somebody then you can't say it's addressable. Yeah. So you have all these, all these reports coming out saying Europe's total addressable market is X billion dollars. $8 billion, $16 billion, $1 trillion, who knows, you know? Like, there's a report for every single number you want. If you're a CEO and you're want, and you, you're like, oh, I want, I want a report that says the total addressable market is $98 billion in Europe. You can go get one. Yeah. There's all this bullshit out there everywhere. But the, so, so Europe's, Europe's sales right now are probably under, uh, are, are definitely under a billion dollars. It's probably like in between 500 and, 700 800 million dollars and we're talking i'm talking um like 
unlicensed medical marijuana, right? Like, like medical cannabis with like THC in it, flour or whatever. Like you can get it in oil and all kinds of different formats. But so I'm not talking about like Sativex and all that. I'm yeah. talking about medical cannabis that hasn't gone through clinical trials. Yeah. Because that's where they see the market. So that's what I report on. Yeah. CEOs, CEOs think that's going to be the massive market. So that's the market I report on. And I'm like, guys, there's almost no market there. Yeah. So they build, they build like an 800 or uh, $200 million greenhouse in Denmark. Denmark's sales are so low. I can't even put, put a number on them. Like it's pathetic. Yeah. I think one like, of the LPs in, uh, in Australia out West might, might've yeah, done some recent activity in Denmark. Well, one of your biggest companies, um, what's it called? Little Green Little Farm. Green, Little Green Pharma. They're in Denmark. But yeah. they, they appear to me to be doing things right in terms of, so they bought Canopy's greenhouse. So basically Canopy, I think it was Canopy, it might've been Aurora. No, it was Canopy. They bought Canopy's greenhouse on the cheap. Canopy paid a lot of money to buy this greenhouse, get it up to speed, get all the stuff in there. And then they were like, and then they didn't know how to make money off of it. And then they sold it to Little Green Pharma, who appears to me to be doing things right by not over-investing and concentrating on sales. And that's what most companies get wrong in this industry. Yeah, is they don't totally. concentrate on sales. They concentrate on their story. They concentrate on getting investors hyped up and excited about their stock, <laughs> but they don't concentrate on where they can actually sell their stuff. And is that if you were, you know, having a lot of exposure to the industry, if you were theoretically about to do your own cannabis company, how would you do it differently? Me? Yeah. So no one's ever asked me that before. I don't know. <laughs> Reverse to be with you, <laughs> I'm not, a, to be honest with you, I'm not enough of a risk taker to start a cannabis company because all I see is unmet expectations and regulatory development. Your whole business relies on foundation of your business is countries creating regulatory pathways for consumers to purchase your products. And that has happened so unbelievably slowly in almost every country yeah. that I, I see it as very difficult to make money. So like Mexico was supposed to be the biggest, biggest in the world, like two years ago, it's still not even legal there. You know, all these countries. I mean, everywhere it's super slow. In Europe, the biggest risk I see in Europe is all these countries starting trial programs instead of actually legalizing and regulating it. And the trial programs, in my opinion, are, are, are a waste of time because um, you get like, it takes years to get them going and they get going. And then the total addressable market inside of that trial program which is the only place you're allowed to legally make money. So it's all a big, a big legal company would care about is, is super small, right? So you have like France and Denmark and um, Ireland has a trial program. All these countries love starting, love starting with trial programs. And so that's what I'm afraid Germany's going to do. So they want to legalize cannabis, right? But they have a whole bunch of issues legally in terms of like EU law and, and, and U, the UN stuff. Uh, so I'm afraid that they might at some point be like, well, it'd be easier to just start a trial program. Let's just start a trial program. That would be a disaster. Yeah. For big companies. Yeah. Well, my, um, my brother actually 
lives in uh, twin brother lives in France and he has sort of been giving me updates and yeah, he said that it's moving so slowly over there, all of the, the trial um, stages. So he, he thinks it's going to be years before they even have a, a stable medical market that's accessible to everyone. It's sure. yeah, it's um, it's crazy. I, I have to ask uh, before we uh, wrap wrap up. I, you know, do you ever get to do sit down interviews with uh, any of the the CEOs of of these big companies in Canada? Are you blacklisted because you you know tell the truth? About- I don't think I'm blacklisted, but I, I think that I can access them when I need to, if I need to. Like, I, yeah. but I've never interviewed Canopy CEO. Yeah. Um, the thing is, is at one point CEO return CEO turnover was so high. I was like, <laughs> yeah. I was like, I'll just interview the next CEO. Yeah, you yeah, know what yeah. I mean? like, <laughs> yeah, totally. It um, lost like we lost like Bill. Five billion dollars. How much longer can this guy last? I don't know. Yeah, Who knows? and I imagine uh, every time there's a changeover, same type of fluffy announcements, you know, to to mark their um their incoming. I mean, it, we we see a lot of that here in Australia, except it's kind of gotten to the point with you know some companies where they they will just say something like, you know, company A has um announced an intention to have a meeting with company B to possibly talk about doing thing C, you know, like the extent to which these are sort of really just non-committal announcements just to create hype, create value. I mean, I'm sure a lot of those were, you know, cut and pasted or copied and pasted from uh, announcement that you, you might've seen in, in Canada, but you, you would see, do we, are we still seeing a lot of that? Not as much. No, I, I was just going to say, like, I don't have anywhere to go right now, so I don't have to leave. But, but yeah, so that was the foundation of the industry in Canada from 2017 to 2020. It was the press release industry where, like, they didn't concentrate on their sales. They concentrate, uh, concentrated on the next press release to get investors excited. Yeah. And, and um, yeah. And, and but I yeah, guess- so not less, less now because businesses these days, like, investors are really pissed off because their stocks are down 95%. Because the yeah. companies are hemorrhaging cash and market share. And so now investors are demanding the companies become profitable. Yeah. But when you run a business so poorly for so many years, you can't just turn it around and start being good at what you do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That makes yeah. sense. Especially when you have so much experience of, you know, running it badly and sort of leaning on that experience. <laughs> yeah. yeah and I, like, I don't think anything we're saying here is controversial. Like these companies have lost like $15 billion. Yeah. That's but, crazy. Ace, my, my last question would be uh, just by the, the, the expression on your face, I can see the disenchantment with the cannabis industry from your end. You've seen it all. You know, I am, I am, I'm disenchanted. You know, I am disenchanted with yeah. it because so many investors lost so many, so much money. Um, so many people lost their retirement uh, funds mm. and because they foolishly invested in ideas instead of businesses. Yeah. And so many people lost their, lost time in their careers. Like I wrote the story, I don't know, a year or two ago where I looked at, uh, I counted about 21,000 jobs in the cannabis industry in Canada in 2019 or 2020. And then about a year or two after that, uh, there were about 7,000 fewer jobs. So you're talking like an extinction level event in the industry where like what other industry 
on the planet would lose like one third of or more of all of the workers in the space of a year. And how can your business survive? I think that's one story about why they're losing so much money is that I, I, don't, I, I doubt that people enjoy working there. When you see everyone around you getting canned, do you, like, you don't start being more productive, right? Yeah. If like your colleagues are all getting fired and laid off, you're not like, well, I'm going to start working harder and doing better. You know, you become disgruntled and you slow down. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess that was the first part of the, what I was saying, but the second part was, <laughs> is there any salvaging kind of uh, silver lining to the industry that you see besides all the doomsday and kind Definitely. of. Uh, yeah. That, that's the best question because legal <laughs> cannabis recreation or medical is good for society because you're taking something that everyone wants. That's illegal. A people aren't going to go to jail for it anymore. And B people who are doing illegal things, some of those are, are bad people, biker, biker gangs and whatnot, and they use the profits for bad things, that money goes automatically right to the legal market. So that money is gone for them. Legal cannabis is so good for society. Something like 50,000 Canadians are getting arrested every year, and now it's only for cannabis, and now it's only like four or 5,000. Still surprisingly high. Yeah, that but is. Much less, much less than much less than before. So that's the silver lining is that these businesses, large businesses have screwed it up really badly, but legalization on a whole has been very successful in Canada um, from like a legal, a law enforcement perspective, from a public health perspective. And I think we spent a lot of this time talking about how large businesses are doing, doing things the wrong way, but maybe we, maybe in the future we can talk about smaller companies and what they're doing right. Because I see a lot of small companies cannabis companies can't. That's when we start. We started this interview talking about people who are passionate about their businesses and they're yep. bootstrapping yep. and, and they know the plant and they, and they know their customers, they know what they want. Those are the successful companies in this industry. And those are the ones that are doing very well. Yeah. Um, not profitably though, because it's hard for them to make a profit because the large companies are undercutting them on prices so much. Yeah. But consumers are still willing to pay more for a good product. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, yeah, I'm it's like, to... you know, people, I don't know any of my friends who would, you know, other than being out at a, at a bar buy Johnny Red, let's say, you know what I mean? It's kind of like that kind of thing. And even the cheapest, the cheapest alcohol, the cheapest bottle of wine is not the one you want. Um, generally speaking, sure, there's a market for it. But oh, it's, for it's, sure. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I'm, I've got, yeah, time for one more. I'm, I've got, uh, I'm going to take us back to doomsday just because <laughs> that, that's really the reality of, of the situation as it currently stands. An article you wrote late last year that just blew my mind, Matt, that I remember reading was just about the scale of destruction of, you know, of cannabis in, in, in Canada. And it was just kind of along the lines that, even when, you know, you set up these huge facilities, you pay people to grow it, all of these things. And I'm reading my mind. Yeah, man. Well, you know, from an investor's point of view, I mean, you could just imagine how pissed you would be to see that the very thing that's, you know, that's like a beer company, just like, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. What, what's your, this is, this is what makes me, okay. This is what makes me a little bit angry. Okay. I'm actually working on an update to that story right now. I just started it like, oh, like today, literally today. 
So that's why I said you're reading my mind. I got new data for 2021. So yeah. imagine any industry where you're only selling 18% of your production. Do you think that any of those businesses are sustainable? Of course not. No industry can, like imagine you're a car maker and you're only selling 18% of the cars you're making. What do you do with the rest of them? It's insane. Yeah. It's so stupid. These people supposedly went to very expensive universities and got very expensive business degrees, but they don't seem to understand supply and demand. I have a degree in economics, but it's not from a good school. Okay. But I understand supply and demand. <laughs> Do you reckon you could, no. uh, yeah, you could sell more than 18 cars out of a hundred. <laughs> oh, guaranteed. At least 40. <laughs> Especially if you but were so, undercutting no, the entire market. Yeah, <laughs> but no, seriously though. So like, yeah, I, I calculated my estimate. It could be off by a little bit, but my my estimate was that um, as a whole, the industry only sold eighteen percent of its production from twenty eighteen to twenty twenty. So I got the twenty twenty one data um, yesterday, and it's worse. Like, oh, it's not better. So in terms of destruction, cannabis companies in Canada have destroyed almost a thousand kilograms. Uh, of cannabis since 2018. And so that's 1 million grams, right? So they've, they've destroyed um, almost 1 million grams of cannabis because they couldn't sell it. Wow. And they've sold probably, I'm going to guess approximately a roughly a similar, a similar amount. We're all, I'm only talking dried cannabis here. Um, a thousand times. And then, yes. But then there's also a huge amount still in their inventories. And that's where the remaining percentage comes from that's unsold. So they're, grow they're still growing more than they sold. And another thing I want to tell you guys is you got to bug your government about cannabis industry data. Um, I've been able to report on a lot of this stuff because the, gave, the government collects tons and tons and tons of data from these businesses and publishes most of it publicly. And so I can, I can get these trends and I can... Like they don't publish the destruction data, but I can email them and ask for it and they'll give it to me. Yeah, um, we're in a similar situation, uh, I think. Andrew might be better. I don't think that it. your government has nearly as much data as the Canadian government has. Yeah. Like I, we have piles and piles and piles of data for this okay. industry. And that's the biggest problem in this industry outside of Canada right now is you have like Germany and Israel and Australia and Brazil. Probably those are the biggest markets outside of Canada. But the data for those countries is is quite pathetic in my opinion, like especially Germany. Mm. So, I mean, I, I think that if without, without data, you have an in information gap that unscrupulous people will take advantage of. Yeah. And I see that as an existential threat to businesses and legitimate businesses and the cannabis industry in the next decade. If governments don't release at least as much data as Canada has, uh, proactively, quarterly, then this industry, there could be blowback, serious blowback, and we could end up taking two steps back because people get might get angry for various reasons that they've lost their money, they've mm. lost their products. You know, yeah. why would they support the why would they support the legal industry if if they're getting garbage products and they're losing all of their investment all of their investments? So yeah, I think that point. those governments, including yours, have to do a lot better. But, but equally, uh, you know, you bridge that information gap and suddenly um, you, that's an existential threat 
to uh, to the CEO of a big cannabis company in Australia because there's a you know a clear pane of glass that allows the public to transparently assess the um, the financial health of that company. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but no, thank you, um, Matt. I, really so grateful to um just a yeah a beacon of knowledge and insight on um on all all of these things and you know i i it's, you know obviously know that you're an expert at um all things canada but uh you, you seem to be keeping an eye on almost every other jurisdiction around the world as well so you know it's been great to kind of discuss global trends and and things that are going on outside of Canada too with uh, with yourself. Oh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Yeah. Thanks for thank having you. me. No, Thanks, Matt. pleasure. And we might, um, you know, who knows, maybe uh, say a year down the track or something, once you get the latest uh, destruction data for 2022, <laughs> maybe we can <laughs> circle back and do this again. <laughs> Let's talk next week. I'm going to write the story up this week and then we'll yeah, talk about Part two. How much cannabis was destroyed? So in 2021, it was about 400,000 kilograms, by the way. Whoa. Okay. That's I just like know. one LP's capacity though, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, and then you're right. And then, they, and then they'll, they'll save the like stores. They'll stash a lot of their unsold cannabis away. And once you, once you stash it away, it's unsellable because people are still making new product. And so why would anybody want to buy old product when they can buy brand new, brand new fresh product. And that's the number one thing that companies get wrong is that they don't realize they're agricultural businesses. Yes, yes. You're not going to buy one-year-old tomatoes when you can buy fresh tomatoes. Man, so need like a, a cannabis university to send all these uh, executives to for a, a bit of 101. Well, they went to like Wharton. They went to like these schools that cost like like $100,000 for, for, for an MBA, right? But they still don't yeah. understand supply and demand. So I don't know what they learned there. It's a yeah. complex topic, yeah, <laughs> actually, supply and demand. Oh, <laughs> well, on that note, gents, uh, no, appreciate your time so much, Matt. We'll, um, we'll keep in touch and uh, keep doing what you're doing because we, we love reading all your articles here. Absolutely. I appreciate it. That's, that's nice of you. Thank you. All right. Till next Thanks, time. Thanks, Matt. Until yeah. next time. Bye. Cheers.